This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting the position on the end. will never let And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? I don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 126. I am your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khalid. And today, we are back with a very scientific episode. <laughs> and as we did yeah. before, we're, we have with us today one of our serious scientists, Jay, a.k.a. The Hague, underscore ICC. Yeah. Hello. Thanks for uh, having me back. Good to have you yeah. back, Jay. Yes, we regret Mike will not be joining us this time. Hopefully, inshallah, in the future. Uh, but yeah, it seems like he's got stuff going on uh, that he can't get away from. So, but uh, this is a topic that Jay very enthusiastically brought to us uh, that has a lot of nuances to it, I think. It kind of, I feel like it kind of branches off from sort of the, some of the same themes and topics or like questions that came up in our episode about. Cope Morhagen and the insidious deception around quantum field theory and all that. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily characterize myself as like not a rube in that domain, but I was definitely like a little bit more like I had encountered some of that stuff through its sort of assimilation into the humanities through people like Karen Barad. And as I think I mentioned in an earlier episode. Um, so I definitely had like an like an idea like I don't like this like this Copenhagen stuff like gives me the bad vibes like I think it's sus you know and I had like a little like a fire over it whereas this I'm like a bit more floating in the aether kind of that's yeah. interesting I almost feel a little bit of the opposite effect though I am by no means an expert I think in either field of that episode that we did mostly about physics which is I feel like very above my head and uh kind of the topics we're getting into today. I feel like maybe because I've dug more into the sort of sus Silicon Valley, Stanford, like development of the internet kind of stuff. And mm. I feel like even going back years, you get like little hints at kind of this world in things like Adam Curtis documentaries. And so like, for example, I mean, the subject we're really going to be focusing, I think primarily on today is the uh, very complex, extremely complex <laughs> sort of a, I, I don't even know what you would call it, discipline of cybernetics. You know, I think we, we've touched on it a few times in recent episodes, like the one about the Unabomber 
and like the weird milieu of like Stuart Brand and John Brockman and like the Edge Institute and like mm -hmm. all these people Jeffrey Epstein was funding. And like a lot of things I think we're going to talk about today, like pop up or they, they touch on subjects and mysterious individuals and trends that we've covered a lot. So I didn't feel like totally lost, but I still learned there was a lot I didn't know about um, cybernetics, but I do think it does connect in a kind of broader thematic sense. We were joking before recording that maybe this might be the, the dawn of almost like a scientific Contra series that we could do about various currents, you know, in 20th century sciences in the West. And I think as you put it, Jay, that a lot of this, uh, when looked at critically, seems to represent a certain kind of scientific counter-revolution that took place yeah in the a very interesting concept yeah yeah and I, I think i want to loop back around to that at the end once you sort of explained the history here and it's not something i really thought of or saw until today probably yesterday maybe you know as i'm trying to put together my thoughts in preparation for this but you know what we talked about in the last episode how Right. There was this contestation over the interpretations of quantum mechanics and what it meant and what it meant uh, for the world. Right. Where like Einstein really wanted to have an ontological interpretation of quantum mechanics. He wanted to know what does it mean the world is like, whereas Bohr uh, and Heisenberg, um, who became the champions of, of the Copenhagen interpretation, uh, really didn't think that those questions of ontology mattered. <laughs> and um, and Bohr often responded to Einstein's ontological questions with epistemological responses. It was just mm -hmm. about what we can and do know. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's sort of the space where this kind of dovetails the most. We'll, we'll talk about the kind of ontology that cybernetics puts forward and, and how that's different from a kind of typical modern ontology. You know, in, in each of these cases... Yeah, the, the, one of the, the main books uh, I suggested reading for this one is called The Cybernetic Brain by Andrew Pickering. I think mm -hmm. that came out in 2010. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was just looking at that. Just you know, He says in this book all the time, like his, his saying is like ontology matters. Like that's mm -hmm. sort of what he's like trying to put forward that. Um, and this is a book of, uh, you know, it's really a history and philosophy of science book. I mean, even despite the title, The Cybernetic Brain, like if you were to want to read a book uh, to learn about the brain, this is absolutely not one that I would uh, where I would recommend. And we, we can talk about that later. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really a, a sort of history of science book. And he's trying to kind of argue that the ontology that cybernetic put forward kind of got lost. And, and in fact, it, it, cybernetics itself has been lost. This is when you read any history about cybernetics, you know, the kind of the first thing that people will talk about is that like it doesn't exist anymore in any meaningfully meaningful institutional sense. There are no departments of cybernetics anywhere. There are a few places uh, that might be like institutes of cybernetics, um, but though usually that's just kind of using that term and they really these are places that are studying neuroscience or psychology or, or other things that have the that CCRU are more would be an situated. example, right? That Used, yeah. used the term cybernetic, but it was really was more of a humanities kind of a humanities right? thing. Although, although, yeah, I mean, I think that there's probably a lot of aspects. I mean, definitely, some of the thought of Nick Land is 
come up a lot in my head mm-hmm. as I've been reading about these things. Yeah. So that like I think that you can understand those things as within the context of cybernetics, within the the field, the discipline of cybernetics. Although, right, like Pickering in this book, he calls it an anti-discipline precisely because it is so hard to put in a particular field. And all the people who came to make the field up actually came from a variety of different backgrounds with different research techniques. And then in answering the question of like what happened to cybernetics and why is it sort of not here anymore? I mean, the answer is at least in part that all of the different pieces of cybernetics got sort of eaten up and enveloped by other sort of official disciplines within academic institutions like engineering, yeah. computer science, uh, some business in some management. cases, business management, abstract mathematics, um, uh, complex systems. Everything theory. about the internet. Like, it, it, the, yeah, the internet and, a, and AI it blows uh, machine my, learning. Yeah, I don't know if you're about to say this, Call it, but like it actually blows my mind to hear people saying that and him saying that in this book that cybernetics is like a dead discipline and like doesn't exist anymore because it just... Because it's everywhere. That, that's, yeah, it's everywhere. It's literally embedded into every yeah. aspect of our society at this point. It's like, what do you mean it died? But I guess that's that kind of explains it, right? It got kind of like piece, the pieces of it that were kind of like revolutionary ideas or whatever were absorbed into various aspects of like the business and like political and economic structures to the point where now it's just like in the water supply kind right. of, but and nobody like, acknowledges I was actually, it as such. Yeah. I was going to say how similar it is to performance studies where I, I even saw mm-hmm. some of this in Pickering's book where, yeah, it's similar where performance studies, I think did kind of take root in some like departments as being like a proper discipline but it also has that same kind of affect of like anti-discipline interdiscipline and it also sort of functioned as like a a quote-unquote turn in like uh, academic discourse where like every discipline talks about performance you know like it's not like often treated as like a thing unto itself i think that kind of relates to sort of this uh, the systems approach of cybernetics i mean i feel like it's important to like even sort of note in a way because i do remember having like a moment uh like years ago uh when i like it first dawned on me that cybernetics like yeah like you know it does have some things to do like the figure of the cyborg is like a uh Mm. like useful sort of model for like thinking about cybernetics in some ways but like i think when a lot of people hear cybernetics they think that it's like something to do with like it's like inherently to do with machines which in a way like it is but like machines in the abstract sense like it's yeah. uh, right like cybernetics is like government like compu- it's computer science or computer engineering i think a lot of people think it's a synonym for that but it's actually yeah exactly not. it has to do with like robots and like you know andrew but like no not necessarily like it right. only in maybe like an abstract or like analogical way uh is it really is that really like determinative of what cybernetics is but yeah i mean the uh, question of ontology i think is very interesting and i think that yeah that's the core of kind of my interest at least in the earlier a subject that we dealt with for sure because and i think that even in a lot of the humanities you see uh or maybe even in like popular discourse in a way like because you know my i have a friend who works at jstor um you know who's hoping to to leave soon he was saying uh that uh like the most popular sort of categories on JSTOR, like politics and history, you know, so I think that those disciplines are the ones that kind of uh, filter down into the popular discourse in a way. And I feel like in 
those disciplines a lot of the time ontology is kind of treated like almost like a dirty word like a bad thing you know like it's oh that yeah. is like metaphysics of presence you know it's getting it's like it's onto theology or whatever which i you know derrida always like invokes that as like the worst thing in the world and i'm like why is that bad like explain uh but you know, I guess it's evil, blah, blah, blah. What does that mean? Like, like having an ontology is like on Pretty theology? much like, yeah, because like everything should be, I don't know, epistemic. And like if you're trying to make any truth claims about like the nature of the world or uh, caring about like presence, like you're not really deconstructing enough. Like I it's yeah, it, it doesn't similar. Really it, sound, it sounds like that, any sense. But, it sounds like yeah. it resonates with kind of the uh, the Cope Morhagen crowd and their kind of. Uh, assertion yeah. that like, of the, the fundamental unknowability of everything and how I don't yeah know, like, the sort of inherent randomness or uh yeah i mean the thing is like they do have an ontology and i think that a lot of them did in some way like a lot of the sort of uh you know post-structuralist thinkers did kind of move towards ontological topics like in uh in certain ways like from certain angles i think uh Deleuze and Gaudry are an example of that but uh, yeah, I mean, and Heidegger was all about ontology. I think that he was the one who first sort of like reified ontotheology as like a negative thing um, where, you know, being was under erasure and people weren't discussing it in a uh, nuanced way. And we're just kind of like repeating certain entrenched pieties. But I think that in a way eventually came to be like conflated with the whole idea of ontology itself you know like uh you know derrida i think said like uh ontology is a is a conjuration or something you know it's uh and i mean i th you know it's deeply involved with epistemology but i think it's definitely an important subject to get into and it can't actually be you know kind what? of I subject to erasure yeah oh, as the lose? like oh, yeah. no. by far least academically credentialed person here <laughs> can we start with just to remind people what is your working definition of ontology and epistemology, because it comes up a lot in this book. Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess that's true. Ontology is uh, ideas about, like, sort of the thought about, be thinking about being, you know, like, what things are, uh, what is, pretty much, which is a very big question. And epistemology is kind of, like, how you know, it's a thinking about how one knows what one knows, or thinking about knowledge and sort of justified beliefs. Uh, so one can definitely see the crossover between them uh, and the boring between them that occurs. But, you know, there's still distinct fields that I think, as Jay said, are often like kind of held in tension where ontology needs to be like objected. And that's bad. Epistemology like is OK because like we all have different beliefs or like. But, you know, once you get into the ontological domain, people tend to maybe balk at that. I don't know, uh, Jay, if you would. have. Yeah. And I think yeah. also right, just in terms to add, right, we. Um, talked about in the last episode how there is this movement you know in philosophy of science called logical empiricism which was trying to essentially excise the realm of ontology and metaphysics from science and to say that right it science is about making uh empirically verifiable claims mm -hmm. based on sense data mm -hmm. and so i think that in the sciences it probably in, in a similar way as you were kind of just describing in humanities, it, there was this, you know, post kind of Copenhagen and uh, which was happening around the same time as uh, sort of the later part of the, the logical empiricism. There was this view that, like, you know, you don't 
want to have an ontology as a scientist. You're not, those are not questions that you are dealing with. And so it's sort of like seen as, as being, you know, put out uh, and a separate kind of field of study. Um, And I think, you know, we, in the previous episode, push back against that, push back against that. Um, yeah, the all metaphysics are bad kind of mentality, view. right? Right. And yeah. instead, you know, we said that metaphysics, right? And that, that essentially Which ultimately right, has problem, a result of just advancing a certain metaphysics as not metaphysical and just like factual. Exactly. Which is right. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. ideology, right? It, it, it's yeah. what, it, what it is, is, is that it takes the, you know, dominant ideology or, uh, you know, in the, but the sort of Gramscian sense, the cultural uh, hegemony and sweeps that under the rug and just, you know, inculcates everyone with that because it's just in the air uh, in all of the the media and uh, whatnot and society that you exist in. And so everyone sort of internalizes that without ever questioning or being aware that that is happening, right? Because yeah. um, you cannot escape having an ontology. And, and we'll talk about this later, sort of why that is. I mean, I think that that is deeply embedded in what it is to be alive and to be a cognizing, living, breathing agent in the world. You know, it's like you have to have, to to be an agent in the world, you have to have beliefs about the world. Mm-hmm. And that, that idea right there is actually sort of like a really core aspect of a lot of what we'll talk about today. You know, and so, right, it's like Pickering in, in this cybernetic brain book is like constantly talking about ontology and, and is saying is, right, ontology matters because he's trying to make this argument that like what you think the world is composed of influences how you build up your models and your views of the world. And that then influences how you act in the world and yeah. what. Like there, and, and all I, of those it things. strikes me there's a lot of like other words for this with like uh, core assumptions, first principles, like fundamental beliefs. Like that's basically what we're talking about with ontology, right? It's like yeah. you have to have a core set of understandings and interpretations of like what is real. That's a very yes, tangled reality word. Reality is yeah. like a pretty definitive, like a very uh, determinative uh, concept in like the ontological right. Thought. And I think this will get more clear for people as we get more concrete, right? This is a very abstract kind of discussion of what is ontology now, but we'll start kind of comparing different views of the world and, and that that may get clearer for people um, as we go through. Yeah, so I mean, I guess might as well kind of start with just like what is cybernetics and like an introduction to that and, and a little bit of a history and, and why we think that's important. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, everything we kind of just talked about will get looped back in. So yeah, I guess to start, right, the, the term cybernetics, uh, Khaled mentioned earlier, is related to, to governance. Um, and it was first coined in um, 1947 in a book by Norbert Weiner, who was an MIT uh, mathematician, titled Cybernetics or Control and Communication in the Animal and Machine. And this book, it was like, it was very technical. It had lots and lots of math and stuff in it, but then a lot of stuff sort of written in, in plain language for people to understand it. And it was, it became incredibly popular. Uh, the New York Times wrote like multiple articles, like glowing about it, you know, so it, it spread, especially for like a technical book, uh, really fast and, and was quite popular. And, and it was something that like people 
were confused about. It was like control and communication and the animal and the machine. Like what do control mm. and communication have to do with each other? And like, aren't animals and machines different, you know? So it's like already there's this sort of transdisciplinarity-ness to it. And so cybernetics is the title he gave it comes from the Greek word Kubernetes, which means steersman. It's also the, in, in Latin, it gets tune, uh, changed to gubernetes, right? Which is then the, the, the root for the word governor. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the, the central kind of idea in cybernetics is that it is a science of steersmanship uh, or a science, again, as, as the title said, of communication and control, right? So the, the idea of what a steersman is doing on a boat, right? This is a person who, who navigates a boat they need to get across the body of water, whatever they're on, and they can see a point on the horizon that they need to aim for, but they can't just plan a trajectory at the beginning and just go there because there's wind and there's waves and there's all these various things, right, that are going to throw them off their course, right? So what the role of the steersman is to do is to keep his eye focused on the point that they're trying to get. And as the ship periodically gets blown off course to adjust the steer of the boat and to guide it back towards that point. And so this idea is capturing sort of the, the central idea in cybernetics, which is that of feedback or of negative feedback. So you could also describe cybernetics as a science of feedback or in a more sort of maximal sense, as we could kind of talk about the science of adaptive systems. It, this originated, um, right? So Weiner wrote this book in 1947 or it was published then. Um, but, you know, you can go back sort of in the literature and see that a lot of these ideas were existing earlier in the 1940s, 1930s. Weiner's kind of conception of all this came together during World War II when he was at an institute in Mexico City, uh, the lab of Arturo Rosenbluth, where the U.S., the Allied powers had brought a bunch of engineers and scientists and other people, and they had put them all kind of together in this lab in Mexico city as it was a, a neutral uh, site presumably was, you know, safe from the war. This was a very interdisciplinary group of people. Weiner was the mathematician. There were people there who were neurophysiologists, uh, psychologists, engineers, and they kind of discovered in these meetings that they had a huge problem communicating with each other because they all had different conceptions of what things meant from their different disciplines. And so Weiner got this idea of starting to do a more informal sort of dinner talk series where they'd have dinner together and somebody would give a talk about what something meant within their discipline. And they'd all do talks on the same theme. And the, the theme that they chose was, was control. And what, is it, what does control mean in each of your disciplines? Um, right. And Weiner, uh, this mathematician, he was working on um, artillery control, right, which is a huge problem in World War II. Um, in particular, like in Britain, they were getting bombed every night and solving a problem of how to hit an aircraft from a gun on the ground was very difficult. And that would, were sort of the problems that, that Wiener was working on at the time. And anyway, right from these, these meetings in the 1940s during World War II, it, people came to realize that these aspects of control were kind of ubiquitous in all of these different sciences. And the mechanisms underlying control were shared 
in a lot of these different sciences. And so they started to put together that maybe there is a new science here. Um, and that is really sort of what, what birthed cybernetics. So Weiner comes out with his book, Control and Communication in Man and Machine, in 1947. And then there are a number of other publications afterwards. In, I think, 1950, W. Ross Ashby publishes Design for a Brain. Um, so a number of other books kind of get, get published in that same time. Um, this is also when, like, information theory is first developed. Um, so Claude Shannon, I think is 1948, produces his first paper on information theory, which is important, but sort of uh, uh, not exactly a part of cybernetics, so to speak. But that leads to a lot of developments in computing and things that are happening all in parallel at the same time. And so, yeah, that's kind of the, the initial origins. And then really it, it gets sort of fostered into a bit more of a cohesive discipline through uh, two different avenues, one American and one British, which each have sort of different origins. So the American one is something that you've talked about on the podcast before, which are the Macy's Foundation conferences yeah. in the early 1950s. Those, the, the first one was also entitled Cybernetics, and it was about control and communication. I forget exactly the title there. Um, but but they were pretty explicitly conferences for elucidating, figuring out what this field of cybernetics entailed. And uh, as I kind of talked about, right, that that um, the origins are like very clearly in military research. Um, Weiner was studying anti-aircraft control and the control of, of artillery machines. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, but then the other group in the UK that really started putting this together, um, much more comes out of sort of psychiatry and neurophysiology. And this is a group called the Ratio Club, mm -hmm. which, which was also like an informal kind of dinner meeting that I think Ross Ashby was the main person who, who sort of organized it. I think and right, yeah. there it was all more junior people. They explicitly didn't want anyone who was like a more senior researcher. And they brought them all together and had, you know, dinner conversations about similar sets of things. I think that Norbert Weiner's book in 1947, the, the Control and Communication in Man and Machine, was the initial topic that the Ratio Club people got together to sort of talk about. And so it's these two groups that are like ad hoc um, things that are put together mostly just by the participants, although with the Macy's conferences there's a little more sort of top-down uh influence in terms of why these things got put together those yeah. really form the initial sort of social base for cybernetics and the fleshing out of it as um a field so yeah that's kind of the the initial early history i mean i think there's a lot more to talk about there specifically but i guess i just want to see where where do you guys want to go in terms of, of talking about that early history yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Yeah, and I, I definitely see, like, uh, Dimitri's point, uh, or his point from earlier, that this is, in a way, very sort of uh, familiar to, familiar terrain to the podcast, and in a way, I mean, I think that there's, like, some interesting, like, ideas at play, like, in some of these writings by cyberneticists or, or thinkers on cybernetics, and uh, I think that there's, like, some complexities, but I do find it, like, inherently 
uh, like a sus organizing principle to your discipline. Uh, like if it's control, you know, like it just like, uh, yeah. like gives me Seersmanship. like a yeah like it's just like yeah i want to like study control like i mean yeah especially the macy side of it because yeah that was very ruling class backed by i forget who were the prime you know like margaret mead and gregory bateson who we're gonna get into uh were definitely big movers in it but i mean the cast of characters that attended those conferences are kind of like the entire kind of a sus posse or network of people that like bridge these worlds between psychiatry kind of cybernetic stuff things like mk ultra and then like the 60s culture op basically like they all yeah many i think like tim leary aldous huxley they attended the macy conferences well and and aldous huxley's brother uh julian huxley or is it julius huxley i always forget uh was a member of the ratio club and oh, is really? one of the most famous neuroscientists, neurophysiologists of all time. He won the Nobel Prize for uh, there's the, the most famous model of the neuron. It's called the Hux, Hodgkin's Huxley model. Huxley being Julius Huxley and I Julius think it Huxley. Was Julian, right? Julian. Julian Swirl, is, is, yeah. And he okay, was yeah, Julian, like a huge sorry, eugenicist. Yeah, he was too, the right? president was of the British eugenics. He was the president and, of the British Eugenics Society between 1959 and 1962. Right. He's also the person who coins the term transhumanism and was one of the first uh, transhumanists. And there may be some some space to sort of talk about that. I didn't really do any reading or, or prep about transhumanism before this. But one of the other insights that Norbert Weiner had and is sort of one of the, the keys of cybernetics, right? I guess we've talked about this man and machine part, mm-hmm. is that man and machine form in all types of spaces and, and uh, aspects of society and whatever, a unified system that should be understood together. So Weiner had this kind of discovery or, or insight when he was uh, trying to predict the flying patterns of the planes he was trying to shoot down with his anti-aircraft weapons. One of the engineers who worked with him was also a pilot. And Weiner was like, well, you know, if if we're trying to shoot them, they're going to engage in evasive maneuvers. So, you know, they're going to be swerving back and forth and whatnot. And it's going to make it harder for us to predict. We're going to have to predict what their evasive maneuver is. Right. And one of the things that his engineer pointed out to him is like, well, Weiner kind of thought they were going to do like a zigzag pattern. And as engineer pointed out, well, that planes can't fly in a zigzag pattern even as much as the pilot might want to do that because of, you know, all the physical limitations on the plane, right? So actually, they're going to come in a much more sort of rounded, sort of sinusoidal, uh, swerving back and forth pattern if they were to do something like that, that is going to be dictated by the physical parameters of the plane itself and as well as the intentional parameters of the plane pilot system that the two man and machine are coupled in together, which is what is going to produce the output that we actually need to predict, which is the flight pattern of the plane. Right. So part yes. of this key insight and that is that in this. a way is like the cyborg thing, you know, like the same way yeah. that like I'm a cyborg because I wear glasses or, right. you know, it's like, yeah, not like you're literally you know, like a Star Trek Borg, but you also have to like uh, work with non-human things or, uh, you know, non-human systems or even other systems of human beings in order to accomplish goals or objectives in 
uh, a larger system environment. If you know, yeah, I mean, you can uh, right you like improve on what I've said if you yeah well but yeah that's yeah so okay. well I think um, I have uh, some quotes here that I pulled out from uh, the book Rise of the Machines by Thomas Ridd I, I sent that mm-hmm. one as well I don't know if either of you guys uh, got much into it but there's a, a section in the beginning that I think is a pretty good sort of explanation of Weiner's initial insights mm-hmm. um, yeah the Rise of the Machines is for for listeners is a book that's interesting and I'd recommend I I, I did not go all the way through it. Um, but whereas I said, like the cybernetic brain is really like philosophy of science and history of science oriented, like rise of the machines is written more for a popular audience. And the author Thomas Ridd is sort of like a military intelligence historian kind of, uh, so it's got a much more sort of military bent and focus. Um, and it's written for a more popular audience, whereas whereas the the um, cybernetic brains are more for an academic audience. Mm-hmm. But so so here's a a section, right? Three ideas uh, were at the core of this novel approach to thinking about automation and human machine interaction. The first core idea of cybernetics was control. The very purpose of machines and living beings is to control their environment, not merely to observe it, but to master it. C- control is fundamental. The concept of entropy illustrates just how fundamental. Entropy is a measure of disorder, of uncertainty, degradation, and loss of information. Nature has a tendency to increase entropy, to gradually decline into disorder. Cold things warm up, hot things cool down, information gets lost in noise, disorganization gradually takes over. Halting or reversing this trend towards disorder requires control. Control uh, means that a system can interact with its environment and shape it, at least to a degree. Environmental data are fed into a system through input and the system infects the environment through output. For Weiner, this was the essence of the cybernetic worldview. Now here's a quote from Weiner. It's my thesis that the physical functioning of the living individual and the operation of some of the newer communication machines are precisely parallel in their analogous attempts to control entropy through feedback. Uh, This quote introduces the second core concept of cybernetics, feedback. For Weiner, feedback describes the ability of any mechanism to use sensors to receive information about actual performance, as opposed to expected performance. An elevator is an example. Feedback will tell the door opening mechanism whether the elevator is actually arrived behind the sliding doors and only then open the doors for awaiting passengers. Not using feedback would increase risk of error, possibly allowing unsuspecting people to step into an empty elevator shaft. All right, so that I think is a kind of good introduction to the first two kind of core ideas there of feedback and and control yeah i just wanted to talk a little bit about like the one of the appendices to Weiner, or sorry weiner i guess it's just it's just weiner right i Uh, I don't have to do the v yeah one of his appendices is actually about like learning machines and on the whole like this book is like very prescient like it i mean correct me if i'm wrong but it kind of predicted like the idea of a chess playing computer that was kind of like a laughing stock. You know, you had like the Mechanical Turk and stuff, like the idea that a computer could exceed human ability in playing chess, like was not taken seriously. And yeah, I he think was someone who like right, advocated yeah. for that, but he got some pushback, right? Uh, yeah, there's there's a really interesting part that comes like in one of the appendices to the book, uh, which talks about like the topic of, of learning machines. And I, it's very SJ uh, in many, many ways. Okay. And I think uh, it, it, like it should be... Uh, you know, uh, given uh, some some attention here, yeah, it even brings up the uh, topic of magic, which uh, I think people are uh, sometimes 
upset that we bring up the topic of magic or treat it seriously, but I think that mm-hmm. throughout this literature on cybernetics, you see mm-hmm. uh, the idea of magic recur again and again. Even in this very early work, uh, you can you can see it be- being a, a very uh, serious subject, a serious subject of uh, thought or uh, model of, of of thinking about these things. So, yeah. uh, but I want to start here. So he says, as a Walt Disney movie of several years ago showed, when one of our western birds attacks a rattlesnake, uh, the bird fights with its beak and claws and a, the mongoose uh, with its teeth. The pattern of activity is very similar. A bullfight is a very fine example of the same thing. For it must be remembered that the bullfight is not a sport but a dance with death to exhibit the beauty and the interlaced coordinating actions of the bull and the man. Fairness to the bull has no part in it, and we can leave out from our point of view the preliminary goading and weakening of the bull, which have the purpose of bringing the contest to a level where the interaction of the patterns of the participants is most highly developed. This is almost kind of reminding me of like the Delgado like bullfight, ex- like, bull yeah. electroshock yeah. experiments. Right. Like mm-hmm. They love the bull. F- anyway, the skilled bullfighter has a large repertory of possible actions, such as the flaunting of the cape, various dodges and pirouettes, and the like which are intended to bring the bull into a position in which it has completed its rush and is extended at the precise moment that the bullfighter is ready to plunge uh, the estoc into the bull's heart. I guess that's, you know, his sword. What I have said concerning the fight between the mongoose and the cobra or the toreador and the bull will apply to the physical contest between man and man. Consider a duel with the small sword. It consists of a sequence of feints, parries, and thrusts with the intention on the part of each participant to bring his opponent's sword out of line to such an extent that he can thrust home without laying himself open to a double encounter. Again, in a championship game of tennis, it is not enough to serve or return the ball perfectly as far as each individual stroke is considered. The strategy is rather to force the opponent into a series of returns, which put him progressively in a worse position until there is no way in which he can return the ball safely. These physical contests and the sort of games which we have supposed the game-playing machine to play both are the same element of learning in terms of experience of the opponent's habits as well as one's own. What is true of games of physical encounter is also true of contests in which the intellectual element is stronger, such as war and the games which simulate war, by which our staff officers win the elements of their military experience. This is true for classical war on both land and at sea, and is equally true with the new, as yet untried war with atomic weapons. Some degree of mechanization, parallel to the mechanization of checkers by learning machines, is possible in all of these. There is nothing more dangerous to contemplate than World War III. It is worth considering whether part of the danger may not be intrinsic in the unguarded use of learning machines. Again and again, I have heard the statement that learning machines cannot subject us to any new dangers because we can turn them off when we feel like it. But can we? To turn a machine off effectively, we must be in possession of information as to whether the danger point has come. The mere fact that we have made the machine does not guarantee that we shall have the proper information to do this. This is already implicit in the statement that the checker-playing machine can defeat the man who has programmed it. And this is after a very limited time of working in. Moreover, the very speed of operation of modern digital machines stands in the way of our ability to perceive and think through the indications of danger. The idea of non-human devices of great power and great ability to carry through a policy and of their dangers is nothing new. All that is new now is we possess effective devices of this kind. In the past, similar possibilities were postulated for the techniques of magic, which forms the theme for so many legends and folk tales. So, yeah, you can. we've talked about this continuity before, you know, the continuity between the realization, you know, Dimitri often will bring up the sort of uh, remote viewing 
versus the internet, you know, the sort of uh, parapsychological or paranormal ability of remote viewing and how it has similar operational goals with the internet. He's sort of mm -hmm. drawing that same kind of comparison here, like that the problems that he's exploring through uh, the idea of learning machines or uh, complex uh, machines of human design were explored previously through the the subject of, of magic. So mm -hmm. these tales have thoroughly explored the moral situation of the magician. I have already discussed some aspects of the legendary eth ethics of magic in an earlier book titled The Human Use of Human Beings. Uh, very yeah. sus oh, title. Wow. Okay. You so need to calm down. So, yeah. yeah that, so that, that title, I, I skimmed through that book a little bit, right? That that was his 1950 book where basically after he came out with, with cybernetics, and it was like a very technical book, like filled with math. Mm -hmm. And and yet it like sold like hotcakes and like the New York Times wrote multiple articles about it. But then, you know, he was pressured to to write a book for a more popular audience. So that uh -huh. the human use of human beings was his first one. And the, as sus a title as that sounds, it, at least Weiner's use of that phrase is is supposed to be humanistic right he's talking about the see, human yeah. use of human beings it is the the use of, of human beings that is in line with humanism humanistic is, 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 okay right yeah. right is that mm -hmm. that's what's meant there and, and I, I believe I, I didn't research this too much but like the last like two chapters of that book are putting forward a, a more cybernetic view of society and politics and i believe weiner was like pressured or forced by his publishers to remove those sections uh in subsequent uh volumes and that those are you know the most common editions that you're going to see or mostly second edition copies so the, there is a copy of this uh on the internet archive of the the 1950 edition um so you could go and and, and look at that if people are interested yeah I, I didn't read too much of that although i i looked at a few bits that that came up elsewhere you know, so yeah, I, I, I guess, yeah, we had to kind of like, you know, uh, when we think of people being used, like it generally has a negative connotation not, in like popular right, exactly. parlance, but and, yeah, I can see how in an abstract well, so, sense, everything. So yeah, well, right. I, I think that, right, that, that title is supposed to be getting at basically exactly what you were meaning. And when you're reading that, that last section, which is that once you have this cybernetic worldview of systems embedded within systems, you start to recognize it and of these man machine coupled systems that human beings are being used by machines and, and by other human beings and by society. And that this is an inevitable uh, result of the world um, that it, it only ever can be this way. And so once we understand that and we have developed a science for systematizing and understanding how systems cohere together and embed within each other and form these larger you know systems of systems that then we have to confront that and we have to build society in a way that uses human beings humanistically um but i mean i think as we'll talk right the where cybernetics and the things that it, it has developed have gone and the world that we're in now versus the world that some of these cyberneticians uh particularly Stafford Beer, might have envisioned uh, is very different. Um, and I think that um, part of what, what gave me the, the sort of insight uh, that I said earlier about, you know, that this, uh, along with um, the sort of 
Copenhagen deception uh, constitute in some ways like a scientific uh, counter-revolution um, sort of comes out of this history and this view that that right even the the cyberneticians themselves at the time seemed to recognize what the implications of these new views were um, and recognize that this should lead to a radical transformation of the way societies are organized. Um, though, you know, 50, 70 years later, we can look back and say, maybe that didn't exactly pan out. No, it didn't. Yeah. It's <laughs> fascinating that one of the, I guess this seems to have been written a little bit like this is an appendix. So it's a little bit after the book came out in 1940, right. but it's interesting that, you know, he mentioned like a sort of Walt Disney nature, short it's interesting that one of the stories he uses to sort of thematize the topic of like self-propagating and learning machines is the sorcerer's apprentice uh, yeah i noticed by that. Uh, yeah. yeah he yeah you know just gives the basic story of these sort of out of control brooms that the apprentice sort of can't stop from performing their task you know and he kind of compares that to the situation where uh you know uh like if we ask uh, a magically enchanted broom to do something, you know, we might not get what we want unless we're very careful. He's talking about that in the sort of context of like what we program these complex machines that, you know, really it is impressive to how he's able to kind of think about these things. I guess there's sort of precedents like uh, Rossum's Universal Robots and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, maybe I'm giving a bit too much credit, but it is, you know, uh, these sort of uh, sci-fi AI problems that we find ourselves like thinking about today so much. Yeah, like, you know, he's really I mean, engaging with them. Yeah, another one. He does them. mention Jin as well. I should point out. Uh, he really? brings up the Arabian Nights. Yeah, the uh, the tale of the fisherman, and uh, he calls it the genie. Yeah, I don't. I'm not familiar offhand with the story, but it's basically like, uh, you know, a fisherman just drags up one of the bottles that Solomon imprisoned a genie or a jinn inside uh, in the distant past. And then he unbugs it and the jinn says that he previously was going to reward his rescuer with power and fortune. But now he decided over the years that instead he's just going to kill him. Uh, <laughs> so, but well, you can't. Well, back. actually, another exactly. thing. Can't another, let the jinn out of the bottle. Ex well, exactly. He also <laughs> brings up, I guess, makes some other interesting comparisons. I just want to read the paragraph here where he talks about Sorcerer's Apprentice. Because it, it, it maps on to maybe like, yeah, today the AI shit. Uh, he says that there is something strange and striking about adaptive mechanisms. Most of the examples of engineering that come to mind are not adaptive. Bridges are built, bridges and buildings, lathes and power presses, cars, televisions, computers are all designed to be indifferent to their environment, to withstand fluctuations, not to adapt to them. The best bridge is one that just stands there, whatever the weather. Cybernetic devices, in contrast, explicitly aim to be sensitive and responsive to changes in the world around them, and this endowed them with a disconcerting, quasi-magical, disturbingly lifelike quality. Wiener himself was, we was well aware of this, and his writings are dotted with references to the Sorcerer's Apprentice, who cast a magical spell <laughs> that sets matter in motion and cannot be undone, and the Golem of Prague, magically animated clay. Walter likewise spoke of the, quote, totems of primitive man and invoked the figure of Frankenstein's monster. This sense of mystery and transgression is always attached to, uh, has always attached to cybernetics and accounts, I think, for much of its glamour, the spell it casts over people, including myself. So, yeah, I mean, we're not the only one noticing this shit. Like, you know, yeah. They, yeah. he's referencing it as like the Golem of Prague, you know, which is basically <laughs> a, a clay monster that was, uh, 
you know, uh, put together and then I think fed a like piece of paper with instructions on it to like mm-hmm. do do the creator's bidding. But then he went crazy and went on a rampage. Around yeah, he Prague just started and- killing people too much and he had to have his. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because it kind of gets into the topic of language as well, because that's like how the Golem of Prague is like defeated because it has as a Hebrew uh, emet on its head. Right. Which that's is right. Exactly. Life, and then it erases it to make it become death. Yeah. Uh, Very, you know, so I think that they saw the implications and I think there were other cyberneticists that were kind of uh, always pushing back. Maybe it was rather, Ross sorry, Emet is truth, interesting, or knowledge, oh. like a, a, just like epistemology, like not from the same root, but, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah but yeah. I think I don't know if it was Ross, uh, Ross Ashby or somebody else who was always like hyper aware of the fact that people like took one glance at cybernetics and got totally sussed out by it and like this is the science of totalitarianism you know and stuff like that <laughs> yeah and they they really push back and, and i kind of understand like they're pushing back on it because i even had that kind of assumption of just thinking about because you know knowing uh, you know what i do about like the macy conferences and stuff like right. swirling with all these sus lords that you know they and, and seeing the way it seems to have been applied to some extent in like the development of the internet uh, it, it it's like I'm primed to be sussed out by it. But really, I mean, I think like it both is sus, but also there's more to it, I think. Would you yeah, say that's no, I, I, I agree with that completely. And, and I think I have some a, a couple quotes pulled out that kind of address that question. Right. That, that the criticism of like this whole focus on control. And I think, Colin, you said earlier, it's like, yeah, if like the thing you guys are all getting together to like talk about is control like that alone is like susses me out a little bit. You're like, what is what is the, the motivating impetus here for that? That's the thing that your focus of, of interest. Yeah, I think there's there's. Uh, you know, a, a couple sections. I think we can start talking about this concept of like cybernetic ontology and what ontology cybernetics puts forward and how that's that's different from a typical modern ontology. Because mm-hmm. yeah. um, th- th- I think that's that's quite related here. And there, I have a few quotes to kind of talk about that. Sure. But right. So in the second chapter of the cybernetic brain, Pickering, it's called ontological theater, and this mm-hmm. is where P- Pickering puts forth kind of his idea of of that cybernetics was staging this new form of ontology and that he thinks this, you know, this ontological question matters. Um, and he, he puts it in a lot of different ways. Uh, it, it's hard to exactly say what it, this is the thing that the cybernetic ontology is, but he calls it uh, both an ontology of performance, uh, an ontology of unknowability, um, an ontology of becoming, uh, yeah. And then it also talks about the uh, sort of black box ontology and each of those things yeah. are it kind of capture different different aspects of this view. So we can talk about that. Let me read this this quote first, which is talking about this black box ontology. Right. And so the the idea of the black box was um, a thing that was like a big vehicle for thought in this space at, at the time in science and in, in sort of information theory and computing, right? And so black box is basically, right, a, a uh, uh, some entity that you can see the inputs to and the outputs from, but which inside of it, it, it's black, right? You have no idea what is actually happening inside, right? And so all you have are the inputs and outputs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to then infer somehow about what those things are, right? So he's... He's talking here about uh, uh, this black box ontology. So this is Pickering. This quote starts actually quoting um, Ross Ashby about 
black boxes and how ubiquitous they are in the world. So Mm -hmm. this is the quote. The child who tries to open a door has to manipulate the handle, the input, so as to produce the desired movement of the latch, the output. And he has to learn how to control the one by the other without being able to see the internal mechanisms that links them. In our daily lives, you're confronted at every turn with systems whose internal mechanisms are not fully open to inspection and which must be treated by the methods appropriate to the black box. So that's the end of the quote from Ashby. And then then Pickering continues here. On Ashby's account, then, black boxes are a ubiquitous and even universal feature of the makeup of the world. We could say that his cybernetics assumed and elaborated a black box ontology. And this is what we need to explore further. A black box ontology thus seems entirely reasonable, but having recognized this, at least two stances in the world of black boxes, having recognized this, there are at least two uh, stances in the world of black boxes, ways of going about the world that become apparent. One is the stance of modern science, namely a refusal to take black boxes for what they are, a determination to strip away their casings and to understand their inner workings in a representational fashion. All of the scientists' laws of nature aim to make this or that black box or class of black boxes transparent to our understanding. This stance is so familiar that I, at least, used to find it impossible to imagine any alternative to it. And yet, as will become clear from the perspective of cybernetics, it can be seen as entailing a detour away from performance through the space of representation, which has the effect of veiling the world of performance from us. The modern sciences invite us to imagine that our relation to the world is basically a cognitive one. We act in the world through our knowledge of it. And that conversely, the world is just such a place that it can be known through the methods and the idioms of this modern sciences. One could say that modern sciences stage for us a modern ontology of the world as knowable and a rep- as a knowable and representable place. And at the same time, the product of modern sciences, scientific knowledge itself, enforces this vision. Theoretical physics tells us that the unvarying properties of hidden entities like quarks or strings, uh, sorry, theoretical physics tells us about the unvarying properties of hidden entities like quarks or strings, and is silent about the performance of scientists, instruments, and the nature from which such representations emerge. This is what I mean by veiling. The performative aspects of our being are unrepresentable in the idiom of modern sciences. So, yeah. Right. What he's what he's saying here. One, I think that that quote from Ashby at the beginning, I think it is really insightful. That's like the way we go about the world all the time. We treat everything as a black box. And this is true of, of pretty much everything that exists. We may, for some reason, come to know more about the inner workings of a particular device, but we don't have to in order to use it or to perform with it. Right. And this is also what he means by like an ontology of performance that what is really more important here is not so much what the thing is, but what the thing does. Right. Mm -hmm. We care more about how that that entity, that thing, whatever it is, performs in the world, how it's in how it receives input from the rest of the world and then how it gives output back to the world. Uh, much more than we care about whatever is happening inside the black box that makes that input-output mapping relation happen. So that's kind of the the, the core yeah. idea there. He gets at this I, other thing, which oh, is, yeah. is not captured in this quote, but just that the modern ontology, modern sciences, really starts from this position of separating out mind and matter 
or life and environment, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. animate and inanimate. And that, and that cybernetics instead, uh, sees, um, mind and life as sort of permeating all of these things to various different degrees and as the world as not being fundamentally separate from us in a way that is knowable and representable by our cognitive systems. That's kind of the two sort of yes. big ontological things he's trying to get at. No, here. yeah. As I said, I was just reading that uh, portion of, of a Pickering's book before uh, we started recording. Uh, yeah, because as you said, you sent us a lot of material. So I was kind of just yeah. like going through what jumped out of this <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. Definitely did. And especially the title of uh, this p- second part of the book, Ontological Theater, which I find to be interesting because so often theatricality or performativity is kind of associated with epistemology for the very reason that you mentioned sort of performance has to do with uh doing that's what performance basically is it's doing and ontology is being and epistemology uh, has like you know in terms of knowledge like it's how things are like perceived or like how they function you know it's uh like how they're maybe received like it's more maybe interactional how perhaps like epistemology more contingent yeah, so maybe that's for whatever reason, or it might just be for the general sort of preference for ontology in the very popular and ascendant like post-structural thought. But I do find it interesting, the association between ontology and performance, even beyond the point of like wondering what the ontology of performance is, which is another uh, question, you know, like even just saying like performance is about doing like or what you know, uh, essentially make something performance. That's a whole other question. I mean, this is like uh, maybe going afield from the cybernetic topic uh, per se. But yeah, I find this to be very interesting. And I think that the whole idea, I mean, I've definitely encountered that notion myself before that uh, definitely like the sort of uh, modern scientific approach to things is sort of hermeneutic is based on not letting things be concealed and to like yeah, reveal right. you know make every like everything that is invisible that is it invisible yeah make visible uh, <laughs> and make it famous yeah, yeah exactly make it yeah exactly <laughs> by looking yes, at it which, by literally looking at it it's it's all yes. the same like weird fucking idealism <laughs> like bug that's got into people's brains I'm crazy 
Tiny but exciting blow job. Give me that, give me that blow job. Give me that. It's interesting. He said here, like a little later in that chapter, that perhaps in succeeding too well, modern science has, in effect, blinded us to all of those aspects of the world which it fails to, to get much grip on. I remember mm-hmm. as a physicist trying to figure out why quarks always remained bound to one another and reflecting at the same time that none of us could calculate in any detail how water flowed out of a tap. I think, did we bring that up? I think we either I brought that we'll, up in the well, Chomsky no, episode. The Chomsky mentioned somewhere, yeah. That you, no one knows how water comes out of a tap or something. Like, it was just a right. fact that, like, Which, no one knows. Well, well uh, I mean, so I don't know the, the, the truth about that, but <laughs> I think it does interestingly sort of dovetail with this concept of, of ontology of performance or black box ontology which is like i mean maybe it's true maybe what chomsky meant by this is that like no one is capable like there's some intractable uh mathematics or or sort of physics problem in assess in actually calculating the ways the the forces which drive water out of the tap but like we can build sewer systems we can build plumbing systems right it's like the what, what matters there is our capacity to get the system to perform in the way that we want. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it almost right. in like the simplest way, it's like the performative aspect of a black box thing is what kind of makes it more immediately real for you, you know, as a right. existing being. And so it's like inherently that I guess there is a kind of like ontological because like that's the, the real part is like how you interact with it and how it reacts to you and like what you can do with it as opposed to like what it is, which is a little bit more of an abstract question that is not always. I think there's like an assumption running through a lot of this like modernist 
outlook in science that by being able to take apart something and see all of its discrete little parts and its mechanisms, that that will just inevitably lead to an understanding of like the meta and everything else. Like it flows from like splitting things apart and like, you know, making precise calculations and measurements and all these things. Yeah. And I don't know. He says, you know, he breaks down, I think it was a beer, a Stafford beer who broke it down into like three categories of simple, complex and exceedingly complex systems. Yeah. So the, like the first two are kind of knowable by science and like are, they're susceptible to the methods of modern science and engineering, but exceedingly complex systems are not. They're systems that are so complex that we can never fully grasp them representationally and that change in time so that present knowledge is anyway no guarantee of future behavior. That's interesting in terms of like AI technology today, which I feel like is all completely based upon like predicting future behavior, but only doing it through like data sets in the past, which which again have a very interesting cybernetic like feedback loop thing. Um, we had talked about it recently in like our AI episode that's not out yet, but about how like there are certain like racial like dynamic like racist dynamics and say like predictive policing that because they're using data from like this you know racist unequal kind of system to begin with from the past that all it can kind of end up doing is like reinforcing the past forever and thus like. It, it, it's like preventing the future from developing and it, it feels much more like a control system, almost like a matrix to like keep things in like 1999 forever, you know, and like right. never move forward. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that what's interesting there, right. Is I mean, two of the things that you, that you mentioned one AI and then right. Stafford beer, this concept of, of exceedingly complex systems and that idea of exceeding complexity is in a bunch of other cyberneticians thought as well and it's really common you know there are two sort of aspects of modern science that have been sort of pulled out of these ideas which is uh in terms of the uh, uh the complex systems there's a whole field called complex systems theory which is al- also uh sometimes called like chaos theory um or like nonlinear dynamics these are really mathematical tools for dealing with highly complex nonlinear dynamic systems, many of those mathematical tools came right out of Weiner's 1947 book. He developed a lot of the math that now is the core of complex systems theory in that book in the context of cybernetics. And now I don't want to be, uh, you know, that's not my area of expertise. I imagine there a lot of these things were developed in parallel elsewhere as well, right? So I don't want to say like Norbert Weiner invented this, as is the case with any of these science things, like lots of them are developed in parallel. Uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of complex systems theory stemmed right out of cybernetics. And now that's kind of its own whole discipline existing within the field. We might talk later about the Santa Fe Institute, which is like a, a private um, research institute dedicated to studying complex adaptive systems. Mm-hmm. It's one of the biggest research centers for people who who study complex systems or, or nonlinear dynamics. You know, that it's completely privately funded by like the Kochs and uh, libertarian uh, think tanks and like uh, Christine Maxwell uh, was on the board of it at one time and we, we can, can dig in a little more later. But, the, you know, yeah. in lots of ways that these subfields from cybernetics, things that came up, got taken off and then packaged into individual academic subspecialties. And in that way, 
the sort of bridge, the, the things like the ontology, which you get when you look at cybernetics from a more holistic view is what does it mean that all of these different things fit together disappears a bit when you pull cybernetics apart into each of these different sub-disciplines and then stick encapsulate them inside existing disciplines in you know de departments within institutions academic institutions and things like that like shattering um, the sort of meta theoretical aspect of it that was kind of inherent it, it in the seems it. yeah it seems like that is kind of the case i mean it, it's hard to um to know exactly i mean i think that you know there's a lot of of uh sort of history to be done there to to see to what degree that's actually the case yeah i find like the idea that i mean i think it's very like uh salient very important like this idea that in this sort of process of making visible like something else uh becomes veiled and it's kind of like a, a chiasmatic or right paradoxical operation where like in sort of uh, emphasizing this aspect of knowledge the sort of performative component becomes lost i mean i think that there's uh, like an aspect to knowledge like knowledge's performativity in certain ways and like the way that knowledge production yeah. operates i think that maybe like sometimes like these uh binarisms uh, I, I i think uh have problems to them in a certain way or maybe can be thought out of but it does yeah it's amazing it really reminds me a lot of uh pre-modern pre or early modern islamic treatments of like basically like ontological topics like the mm. emphasis on like toys or or black boxes like there's so many examples i could use like one that comes to mind is kashifi i might have even mentioned this book on the podcast before but uh you know one of my big interests is the use of theater like as a heuristic in uh like ontological uh conversations or ontological discourses in pre-modern uh islamic intellectual history pre and early modern in one of his books of uh, futuat nama which is basically like the the book of young manliness or the it's really a uh, uh, futuat nama sultani uh like the the kingly book of young manliness or the sultanic book of young manliness um but like young manliness basically is like you know, the kind of things that like kids uh, or like young people do, you know, like going out and like doing like sports and that type of activity. Um, and he even talks about like uh, the Harbge, like the, the war place. Uh, my Persian pronunciation is probably just terrible. So <laughs> even worse than my Arabic pronunciation, but uh, hopefully people will like forgive me. But, you know, which is a battlefield, like literally, and even says like that, like, Etymologically, that's what he talks about it as the the maruka. But idiomatically, like the way that like what it literally means is a battlefield, but the way that it's used is like just any site where someone stands apart and like people are gathered and he brings like a skill forward. In a way, this is like a very like cybernetic uh, type of text. And he says like uh, this site is called the maruka because just as in the the maruka of war, every man who has a skill manifests and shows it. And here, too, uh, the America taker, you know, shows his skill. Just as on the battlefield, some are occupied with a demonstration of skill and some with recreation. Here, too, one demonstrates skill and a company recreates themselves. So it's like the same kind of like social dynamic of warfare that are uh, like this mixture of like play and uh, like combat that is like so uh, uh, prominent in these types of things. And 
what is really interesting, I think, is that, you know, he even brings up the problematic of knowledge later on where he says that Adam, like the origin of it, he gives etiologies of all these things. Like, uh, there's a bit of regression, but I think it's, it's interesting because it's kind of like an archaeology of all these topics. Like, you know, the origin of this is when Adam, the angels, you know, were like, you know, one of the rare and very intriguing instances of the angels kind of asking God uh, in the Quran and in Surah Al-Baqarah uh, 30, I think, uh, 230, uh, Surah 2, uh, Ayah 30. You know, they're like, will you put, will you entrust the earth basically to someone who's going to corrupt it? And then Adam kind of humbles them by sort of showing them that he knows the names of things because he's been told the names uh, by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that was like the origin of this sort of like field of combat. So it's like performative, but it also has to do with knowledge. And he even says like, if they, if people ask you, what's the principle of the America as like the sort of theatrical field, but all, like the battle performance field, like uh, then you're supposed to say knowledge is the principle of it. And whoever steps foot there without knowledge has no awareness of his own head, which is very interesting. But the thing that I was going to mention is most interesting is that one of the things that people do in this sort of like marketplace, basically that is describing like public square is like do puppet shows. And he has like a whole allegorical treatment of this where he at like, you know, he sort of uh, talks about the symbology of each of the tools that the puppet players use. And he says like, you know, the tent is an indication to the human body. And he says uh, it's at all times and in every moment, the puppet of another. Words and actions proceed from this tent, but in the tent there is but one who is a source of these differentia. Thus, when the wayfarer rises to this meaning, many exquisite truths become apparent to him. Sorry, I should read. But yeah, this is basically the same concept as like the black box. You know, the idea that like our ver- our bodies themselves are black boxes, and like words and actions are coming out of them, but like the actual agent of them is concealed. And right. it's he, also he, I, it, it made me think earlier just the black box of like the Kaaba and Mecca, like as the ultimate like the performance. True, yeah, of and people you can't go inside unless you pay the Saudis a bunch of money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but it's almost like a big, well, that, it's almost like a big fuck you to like serious science. Like we have a black box, we're like, we're not allowed in it, but we're going to worship here. And like you, you know, it's like it shows a, uh, I guess what he also calls the other thing he talked about was the non-modern ontology of cybernetics. And yeah, he, right. he repeatedly invokes that of like, it performs a non-modern ontology that is like very different from like 20th century modernist, you know, uh, approaches to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think that this that loops back to what kind of started this divergence, Dimitri, when you talking about control and the criticisms of cybernetics as control, uh, as the science of control. And it's like, is that really suspicious? So, you know, Pickering talks about this and it comes up a bunch. Um, I've, I have a couple different uh, um, quotes, either from cyberneticists or, or from Pickering that I think are kind of useful. But he talks about this because. I mean, he, I think, is it's, it's an interesting read because he's very hopeful and sort of positive about cybernetics. I mean, you can tell that he's kind of writing this and he explicitly says it at some points, right, because he, he's just found this sort of phenomenon within science history that, that he found fascinating and interesting. You know, and so obviously he has to kind of follow the critique that I think that the cyberneticians themselves would have had or the response to that critique about control, because I think they would have not thought of it as this evil dominating science of 
control, right? And so he actually describes this as actually, I mean, the reason that that, that that criticism is coming from people who are operating not with a cybernetic worldview, but with a modern worldview, which it, the modern worldview is all about in framing parts of the natural world, which it sees as separate from human beings, from living things, from from mind, from consciousness, right? That's mm -hmm. the sort of just like the or Cartesian dualism in a sense. Right, that, that the modern worldview is about inframing that outside world with knowledge, putting our knowledge on onto it so that we can organize it and systematize it and thereby then interact with it and in, in particular and dominate uh, it. Right. And so it, he, he talks about this and this is a, a good section. Let me find this. Right. So this is again at the end of, of chapter two. I want to conclude this chapter by talking about cybernetics as politics. And to do so, we can pick up a thread I left hanging in the previous chapter. There I ran through some of the critiques of cybernetics that indicated lines of possible response. We are now in a position to consider one final example. Besides the specifics of its historical applications, much of the suspicion of cybernetics seems to center around one word, control. Wiener defined the field as the science of control and communication. The word control is everywhere in cybernetics literature, and those of us who have a fondness for human liberty react against that. There are more than enough controls imposed on us already. We don't want a science to back them up and make them more effective. The cyberneticians, especially Stafford Beer, struggle with this moral and political condemnation of their science, and I can indicate one line of response. We need to think about the possible meaning of control, right? And that, think about the possible meanings of control, that is, according to Weiner, like, how these conversations all started that that this field really sprung out of right mm -hmm. so the objectionable sense is surely that of control as domination the specter of big brother watching and controlling uh one's every move people reduced to automata actually if this vision of control can be associated with any sciences it should be the modern ones though the word is not much used here these are deleuze and guattari's royal sciences aligned with the established order that aspire to grasp the inner workings of the world through knowledge and thus to dominate it and put it entirely at our disposal. Beyond the natural sciences, an explicit ambition of, the US, of much U.S. social sciences throughout the 20th century was, quote, social engineering. Heidegger's 1954 understanding of the science of the sciences as integral to a project of inframing and subjugation comes to mind. At the point, at this point, I want to a need to stress that the cybernetic image of control was not like that. Just as Langian psychiatry was sometimes described as anti-psychiatry, the British cyberneticians, at least, might have been rhetorically well advised to describe themselves as being in the business of anti-control. Now, in part, he emphasizes the British cyberneticians there, one, because like this book is about the British cyberneticians, but two, because, uh, as we sort of mentioned before, right, the American cyberneticians are the ones that are a lot more focused on problems related to war. Um, the the British ones more came out of psychiatry, and you know the the American ones like Weiner were producing bombs and missile guidance systems and things yeah. like that. So, also well so funded of, by like wealthy foundations, whereas I believe like the Ratio Club, even though they did have some susslords in there, was like not. He said it was kind of a, a discipline without a social basis. 
kind of right. in the early kind of stages where it really yeah. was these uh, nomad scientists, if you will, kind of getting together much more loosely and informally than the American one, which is like, you know, we're going to have like a evil Silk Topper conference that CIA right. people are going to be at and we're all going to talk about how we can dominate everybody and that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and again, I, I didn't mention it uh, too much before when talking about the, the in early origins, but like Weiner was a mathematician at MIT and was like good friends with Vannevar Bush, who oh. hmm. uh, is the founder of Raytheon and during the war was the director of the NDRC, National Defense Research Council, which issued a bunch of you know grants for studying various things related to defense, one of which went to Weiner, right? So it's, I mean, his very, from, from and Warren McCullough, who's one of the other early American founders of cybernetics and one of the, the organizers of the Macy's conferences was also at MIT in the um, radio laboratory there. So these guys were very distinctly working on problems related to national defense. They were in this national defense milieu where, you know, the dean of the department they were in is literally the guy who founded Raytheon and would go and would be the director of the National Defense Research Council during the war, right? So they're a lot more directly connected to that stuff. That's not to say the and we can can talk about this with the the, the origins of the British part in psychiatry also are somewhat suspect, um, yeah, but in like you know, different, so very interestingly in different ways. Different like the ways. psychiatry origins of some of those guys really blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So let me finish off this, this quote uh, saying, right, is just as Langian psychiatry sometimes described as anti-psychiatry, the British cyberneticians at least might have been rhetorically well advised to describe themselves as being in the business of anti-control. And, in, and to see what that means, we have only to refer back to the preceding discussion of ontology. If cybernetics staged an ontology in which fundamental entities were dynamic systems evolving and becoming in unpredictable ways, it could hardly have been in the business of Big Brother-style domination and enframing. It follows immediately from this vision of the world that enframing will fail. The entire task of cybernetics was to figure out how to get along in a world that was not enframable, that could not be subjugated to human designs. How to build machines and construct systems that could adapt performatively to whatever happened to come their way. A key aspect of many of the examples we will examine is that of open-ended search of systems that would explore their world to see what it had to offer, good or bad. This, to borrow another world from, word from Heidegger, is a stance of revealing rather than enframing, of openness to possibility rather than of closed determination to achieve some preconceived objective. Come what may, though obviously this assertion uh, will need to be nuanced as we go along. Uh, this is the ontological sense in which cybernetics appears as one of Deleuze and Guattari's nomad sciences that upset established orders. So what he's, he's saying there is essentially that the whole idea of control that we tend to have and think of as being this kind of suspect one is contra to the idea of control that's put forward in cybernetics, right? And this is, again, like a really sort of important thing to understand is that in cybernetics is not talking about controlling a system from the outside, you know, with levers and pushes and pulls, you know, yeah. but rather that systems are controlled through their internal dynamics, 
right? That they're they they the way that they are set up and structured produces a process of control, right? So like the the prototypical, the easiest to understand cybernetic system is a thermostat, right? Which yeah. basically has an input in a, as a thermometer that reads the temperature in your room. And then it has output controlling either the, the heating or the air conditioning. And it regulates the temperature. It controls the temperature in the room or the building or whatever that you're in by a process of negative feedback where the difference between the set target temperature and the measured actual temperature through the thermometer is fed back to the control system and yeah. controls the strength of the output of the heater or the air conditioner, mm -hmm. right? So their like control, again, like you can think of yourself in, in this naive view as like, I control the temperature in my room by walking over my thermometer and pushing up the button up or down, right? And in this way, I am outside the system acting upon it with levers, right? Yeah. But but actually, right, what you what you have is, um, you know, a, a, exactly a homeostasis whereby you are a part of the system who is performing in action of updating the set temperature when the thermometer system is not keeping it within the predefined range that you want. Well, I was just going to say that I think that, I mean, we don't want to do this kind of thing where we're kind of like being a parody of ourselves and like flipping out over like the very notion of control. I mean, like it's, you know, right. in his sort of thing of like saying like, oh, we're attached to human liberty or whatever. I mean, we can easily like talk about all the ways that like the concept of human liberty has been like instrumentalized uh, in service of like enslaving people. Right. And like it's similar to like saying like, oh, you know, uh, I'm just going to make everything about Islam. So just like deal with that. <laughs> but it's like saying like, oh, Islam means like submission. But like, of course, like in Islam, like we see submission as being, you know, it has the same kind of uh, paradoxical effect, where, like submission can be a form of freedom. And oftentimes it's kind of like, you know, you got to serve somebody like a lot of the time, like the answer to being controlled is like through set like be controlled by another maybe is through self-control so like you know the concept of control is so abstract that like we shouldn't uh have like a reactionary orientation to it in general however like i do think that we need to be conscious of the ways that like a science of control or even if, like or an idea uh, like you know the exploration of the concept of control and like understanding it in a more sophisticated way it's going to be like inherently or oh, it's it's very susceptible to subversion. I mean, I I mean, I like uh, you know Latour. I think who he mentions in terms of mm -hmm. the discussion of like uh, being modern versus non-modern. Uh, I mean, Latour's argument uh, in his famous book, like We Have Never Been Modern, is really that like this whole idea of modernity is like very fraught in in many ways, and like that he's kind of like trying to collapse this idea of whether we were modern, but I mean, that's a very, very complex notion. But I think that, you know, to say that the idea that like we're going to from within our current positionality, we're actually going to develop an ontology that is non-modern. I think it's valuable to problematize the idea of modernity. I think, you know, well, Halak, who I've brought up on the show many times, like does this pretty well in restating Orientalism or in the impossible state, like talking about modernity and uh, writing in, in opposition to it and sort of trying to anatomize it in a similar way to, to what you described, like the objectification of matter, uh, the reduction of matter to sort of brute 
uh, just the environment to, to brute matter and uh, the ascendance of the sov- sovereignty of the human being that comes with kind of, you know, the uh, enlightenment and uh, liberal thought in, in a lot of ways. You know, you know, this liberal thought, which is named for liberty and human liberty often, you know, is instrumentalized in a very hideous way, like a genocidal way. But I think, you know, that can be even, you know, I brought the example of performance studies like uh, Richard Schechner, who we actually have mentioned on the show in the past. He's someone who, yeah, like he also was, I think his intentions weren't bad and trying to like uh, create like an interdiscipline and explore like new avenues of thought and shake things up and, uh, you know, really draw attention to this concept of performance and uh, destabilize like certain uh, entrenched ways of thinking. But, you know, he was like doing synonym techniques like in his own, right. like, you know, uh, theater productions, and things like that. I mean, really probably the best example, like just in terms of what you mentioned is like Deleuze and Goddard like themselves. Like, I mean, I remember that uh, article. I'm trying to figure out who actually wrote it. I think I, I have it. Eisman, who who wrote about it, like the use of like Deleuze and Guattari and their ideas of like territorialization. Ayel Eisman, like how the IDF basically like takes those ideas of like uh, verticality and stuff like that. And, you know, the like the flat ontology and tries to like apply that to like dealing with Palestinian tunnels and stuff like that or like uh <laughs> you know wild, or to yeah. erase walls and th- so I think that you know Deleuze and Guattari like you know I don't think that their intentions were bad but because of the way that like uh in the institutional framework in which this theory is produced like the subversion of it uh whatever its intentions are I mean I think that that the whole question of intentionality actually kind of comes up in some of this material. So it's, it's, it's pretty interesting yeah. in that way. Like it kind of gets right. into this, this question of like uh, intentionality versus the actual performativity, like what I mean versus uh, what I do. Like that's a whole uh, question in the theory of performance, I think, that can come up. But, you know, whatever Deleuze and Goddard's intentions are, like the fact is that they're like, even if they're the whole like nomad, or, like deterritorialized thought is supposed to be like anti-hegemonic it actually is like practically applied in very evil Suspicious ways. Way. Well, it's very much yeah. like how we just talked about like cybernetics, like getting kind of like picked apart by these different, you know, uh, disciplines and institutions and then used in like, so like building the Silicon Valley octopus. And it even goes back to like, uh, you know, I think talking about Noam Chomsky, uh, you know, proud MIT uh, scientist, you know, who often got caught up in his own kind of thing of like, you know, even though he did work on some Air Force projects and his linguistic research does seem to have been like you definitely could you can almost stretch just about anything into kind of some kind of military application. So like his claim that, oh, his linguistic stuff has like nothing to do with like the military and also like his political stances have nothing to do with being at MIT and like all these and like they're not limited or regulated or, you know, there's no feedback. Basically, he's saying right. between like this institution he works for, which is like the heart of the military industrial complex and his own political stance. And, you know, while I think I could totally believe that like maybe Chomsky, like in most cases, and maybe in some cases, is, you know, was not uh, going out there like I'm going to psyop everybody and be a limited hangout. You know, it's like nonetheless, it appears to be that is a role that he performed uh, objectively. <laughs> I want some good from certain people's perspectives, you know, so it, it does raise a lot of really complex questions about like human agency itself. And yeah, 
yeah, yeah this like, is kind of like the like this is really it's interestingly like Foucauldian in a way or like it reminds me a little bit of the new historicism which really is like a Foucauldian movement like the idea that hegemonic discourses produce their own subversion because in a way like they're useful which you know is an indictment of like all of us who are like obviously like embedded in many institutions and like systems that like we have various moral compunctions with and like we speak out against it but like are we producing like things of value you know like it's a uh, an uncomfortable question but one that i definitely think should be raised and like floated you know i think that a lot of the time like the the way that, you know, these people who have, like, their own kind of moral compunction of the system are able to produce, like, things of value is through this imagination of, like, being subversive in some way. Well, yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, like, the... It, but after like, it's been, I think, you know, yeah, and it is, it is a problematic thing to, like, ponder because it's, like, do, do these sickos all just, like, want us to, like, criticize them? And it's, like, give me your criticism so I can incorporate it in the algorithm become even yeah, stronger. Yeah, exactly. It's, like, nothing. You just have the blob. It's a blob. Like, you just, well, everything well, you throw at it, it just gets bigger. But I feel, I don't know, maybe there's, there's yeah, some differences there. Yeah, I mean, the big there. critique of... The big critique of new historicism, which is like largely, you know, this is like an application of Foucauldian ideas about power, like to usually like early modern, like historiography and and literature in some ways. And a big critique of it is like, well, you know, if it's all like just if subversion is all kind of like illusory and is just like produced by hegemonic discourses then like why did things like the English Civil War like even happen, (laughs) you know, like so it's there's definitely like a a critique to be made of that type of thing. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Um, I think you don't want to you can almost like shut yourself down into uh, I think what I don't know if it's Ashby or another guy uh, found out with his robots of like giving them a kind of like double bind like situation that they couldn't like that would like result in conflicting sensory data according to whatever their instructions were. And then like it would cause them literally just like go into like catatonia, you know, and yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll talk about that more in like the next section with like the psychiatry overlaps. But it almost right. is like you don't want to fall into that trap where you're like the tortoise robot that like doesn't know what to do because like everything's an op. So like, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, that that's really insightful. Right. I mean, because, yeah, they these. It definitely that that was not Ashby, but now I'm forget uh, Gray Walter. Gray Walter, the guy yeah. who built the, the tortoises, mm-hmm. and um, he also like Ashby was a psychiatrist. Both of them worked at least by like 1950. Were at the the Burden Neurological Institute um, in London, mm-hmm. and uh, Gray Walter is like one of the early pioneers on human EEG data so that's yeah. you know like brain waves you know putting electrodes on on the scalp and and sensing electrical activity in the brain mm-hmm. um and uh ashby was like a big early proponent of electroconvulsive therapy that's right um and so that's like where they they each kind of came out of and each of them saw ashby walter built tortoise like robots and and ashby built this device called the homeostat yeah. which is basically like a a really fancy thermostat that is not trying to regulate temperature, but trying to just regulate its own internal state kind of. But mm-hmm. each of them saw that their devices that they built as giving you analogies for psychiatric illnesses. So Ashby's homeostat, and basically like it had a little meter on it, you know, a, 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 like a magnetic meat, like, like the odometer in your car that could go left or right. And its goal was just like, keep the meter in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had then inputs and outputs that would affect 
the current flowing through it and that would affect the forces on the meter and it basically had to change its internal settings as the forces would come in from its input and its output mm-hmm. uh, boxes or, or, or stations um, it had to basically like take whatever new inputs it got figure out how that deflected the meter and then change its internal configuration in order to get the meter back in the middle that was like its whole thing mm-hmm. and you know he saw situations where the meter is basically just oscillating back and forth uh basically as analogous to aspects of mania or other psychiatric disorders right where you have this sort of runaway process right so in in cybernetics the, this key aspect of control is negative feedback right so you've got some target you measure how the difference between the actual value of whatever it is and the target and then you subtract that difference Mm -hmm. from the output of the machine and try to get closer to the target right and so negative feedback overall will have the effect of like dampening um oscillations uh right and making them smaller towards the top whereas the sort of runaway positive feedback solution uh, situations where um, the feedback is is feeding back into some process and increasing uh, the outputs of that process. And Ashby really saw these sort of runaway systems as a model for um, psychiatric illness. And and there, I have a, a section here. Let me see where where he talks about this, and he talks about like the methods uh, that you use on a machine for what you would do when the machine is is runaway like that and how that sort of parallels to how you would do treatments in, in psychiatry. So, uh, hold on, is this it? So, yeah, so, right. Uh, Ashby often fails to drive home these points uh, explicitly in print. These points, uh, uh, this is uh, Pickering referring to basically the parallels between his psychiatry and his cybernetics, right? Ashby in his own head, saw these things as very separate. And he mm-hmm. thought of cybernetics, at least early in his career, and he thought of the cybernetics as mostly being kind of a hobby. Um, so Ashby often failed to drive home these points explicitly in print, but that proves very little. He contributed, for example, the uh, the entry cybernetics uh, to the first recent progress in psychiatry publication to appear in Britain after World War II. Uh, There he focused on the pathological positive feedback in complex machines, quote, runaway as a model for mental illness, leading up to a lengthy discussion of the stock ways of curing such machine conditions, quote, to switch the whole machine off and on again, quote, to switch out some abnormal part and, quote, to put uh, into the machine a brief but maximal electrical input impulse. We saw this list in the previous chapter when Walter produced it. Uh, he was not shy of spelling out the equivalences to sleep therapy, lobotomy, and electroconvulsive therapy, respectively. Given uh, a pulpit to preach the psychiatric profession, Ashby could bring himself only to say, these methods of treatment of machines have analogies with psychiatric methods too obvious to need description. Ooh, so, yikes. right, so he's like not even really fleshing it out there. And, and, and uh, at the time, right, in the 1950s, those were basically like the three primary methods in in psychiatry, and obviously there there was psychotherapy, but that's psychology. It's not really psychiatric treatment. 
Um, this is real the, peak like you're a sloppy disk hours. Like I'm gonna yeah. reboot you with a shock yeah, of gonna, electricity kind of thing. Yes, like they literally yes. were like looking at people. This like is a, like straight up, yeah, like very uh, precariously close to like full sloppy disk. I mean, it really it is just like full sloppy disk like concept. And I mean, like it's right. yeah. I mean, like in a way, like I get it at a higher enough level of abstraction. Well. I mean, it's interesting because, yeah, you can think about, like, for instance, like uh, the metaphor I mentioned earlier, like the uh, allegory I mentioned earlier, where like, yeah, in a way that's like kind of like I'm your puppet sloppy disk like stuff where we're all like puppets of like the like God. But also, I mean, I feel like there's in a way like the the idea that I mean, this kind of gets into like a monistic like idea, which is uh, controversial in some respects. And I think it's very important to we such even came up in our previous episode, like the sort of uh, the controversy around this. And the, but like we definitely have like a, a you know, or a, like a spirit of God within us, which is like, you know, that's not just like an Islamic idea, but like pretty widely held that there's like something that is put in us like by divinity that makes us more than just a sloppy disc like uh in a sort of uh, unity of existence, like paradigm, you know, we're not right. just like, even though my, he maybe is the agents of our actions, like we could be analogized to puppets, like in a way or toys in a way, we also have a certain identity with that unitary existence that makes us like, you know, there's something of us that's like maybe through like layers of concealment through like a black box set up in there since like, you know, if our actions aren't our own, you know, so well, anyway, but yeah, I mean, so in a way like, okay, well that's, I don't necessarily find that to be problematic, but I feel like, or I don't know, it's a little bit different uh, from like the sloppy conception that we often criticize on SJ, but I feel well, like it's, you know, dangerously close to that verge. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Well, I think what's, what's kind of interesting here is that when you look at like the writings of the individual researchers themselves, especially in the early on days, right. That the section that we just, that I just, quoted from Ashby about like the way we treat a, a machine that's broken is like analogous to the way we treat someone for psychiatric illnesses. Like it, it does feel very sort of sloppy disc kind of view. Mm -hmm. Right. But I, I also think that that sloppy disc kind of conception is more of the sort of modern conception yeah. where, because, and we can yeah. maybe talk about this later when we get into um, modern uh, uh, contemporary views of the brain um, and mm -hmm. actually sort of what the brain is doing. Because at this time in the 1950s, right, this is when computers were just starting to, to become available. Mm -hmm. Norbert Weiner, the, in Rise of the Machines, there's this, this anecdote where, where Norbert Weiner gets invited up to Dartmouth with a bunch of other people to like interact with one of the first computers that they have access to up there and like he he uh the the speaker whoever's leading them invites people to come up to the keyboard and like to try to present it some problem that it can't solve and like everybody mm -hmm. fails and they're all like amazed at how this this machine is like thinking mm -hmm. and so I, I think that a lot of people a lot of these people won right part of it they saw that part of the insight that they had was this coupling between man and machine and that for them, this what this non-modern view of seeing human beings as not different from the rest of the world, from inanimate objects, as being essentially the same thing, but just organized differently. They saw that as being sort of revolutionary. And so they, they also then saw this machine 
that's being built at the time that can do some of these things that previously we thought only cognitive agents could do, like math operations. Mm -hmm. And they think, okay, well, this has to then be the explanation for you know, what's happening in our heads and how our brain works. And the computer now is obviously an analogy for us as cognitive agents, right? That's the whole sloppy disk or wet CPU. Yeah. We've, we've of, created right, a primitive theory. version of ourselves with this computer. <laughs> right. Here. Yeah, but but what yeah. comes out, and this will become more clear as we, we talk later now about the, the, the kind of modern views of the brain, that right, this is an expressly representational and computational view of cognition of what cognition is that like and and this is the way in which it's related to that modern worldview right is that what our brains do as cognitive organs is build up a picture of the world outside us right they they create a a representation through sensory data or whatever so that we can know the world and then operate within it Right. And mm. cybernetics really has the, the opposite view, right, which is that cognition is secondary to performance and that what matters actually is the capacity to act in the world and that our our ability to have a model of the world that in some way accurately represents what is out there outside of us, which we don't have access to, is secondary or epiphenomenal to the function of the nervous system in enabling performance and action. And that we can, can get, get into uh, uh, more deeply later. But so I think that right, these cyberneticians at the time, and you'll see this in the writing, right, they really are thinking it's sort of in this sloppy disk kind of framework. But what Pickering is trying to put forward in terms of like the, the cybernetic ontology, I think is actually contra to that. And that the, the the sloppy disk view is really coming from looking at all of these phenomenon and, and the insight of cybernetics mm-hmm. from a still modern ontology in which the brain is a, a, a you know a type of computer that represents the world that builds knowledge about the world and that is separate from the world even though they're operating with the sort of key cybernetic insight of there not being a separation between man and machine, between animate yeah. and inanimate. But kind of drawing um, almost like a backwards-ass conclusion from it. That like, yeah, right, we're computers right. instead of being like, things are more like us than, it's like, we're more like things than I thought. Like, it's, it's just, yeah. yeah, yeah, but it makes perfect sense that that would be kind of a modernist uh, assumption that people would run with. And it's more useful, I think, in certain respects. Right, especially if you have the view of like, the purpose of science and technology development is to build new ways for me to dominate the world and, you know, maybe you want to turn everybody who, into a computer who labor for <laughs> right. me and write all these things, you know? So I think that it, you can't understand the development of these things outside of the context of obviously like the, the security state and like the world war two and then the cold war. Um, but also, in in the larger just sort of capitalist uh context of of domination for real so just to to sort of um i guess wrap some of these sections up there's there's an incredible money quote from one of ashby's journal entries about how he thinks about treating 
people in psychiatry. So uh, just after uh, he gets appointed to be the director of the Burden, this is in 3rd of November, 1958, he remarks that treating a patient is an imposition of the therapist's will on the patients. It is therefore a form of war. Uh, this precedingly, there were uh, a bunch of yeah. discussions about Rossby's view of war, which which are interesting, and and maybe we could read from this is blitz therapy less necessarily blitz therapy. Yeah, I, I okay. bet this one stuck out to you. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. right, <laughs> treating a patient is an impositions of uh, of the therapist's will on the patients. It is therefore a form of war. The basic principles <laughs> of war are therefore applicable. They may actually be very useful for an opposing army is like a patient in that both are very complex, inherently stable, etc. There he's using very complex, inherently stable as like cybernetic systems theory descriptions of what the system is like, right? A basic method that must be used in war is to use a maximal concentration of all possible forces onto a small part to try to get it unstabilized. The gain here may be semi-permanent so that with this holding, the forces can then attack another point. With this in mind, a blitz therapy could be characterized by, one, the use of techniques in combination and simultaneously, e.g. LSD, then hypnosis while under it, and electroconvulsive yeah. therapy while under the hypnosis. Two, Great. not waiting to understand the patient's pathology, psycho, <laughs> somato, neuro, by hitting hard and seeing what happens. Three, get a change anyhow, then exploit it. When it uh, comes to a stop, take violent action to get another change somehow. Four, get normal every point you possibly can. Five, apply pressure everywhere and notice whether any parts of the psychosis show signs of cracking. Six, let the psychiatric team focus on one patient, others being ignored meanwhile. Summary, blitz therapy, LSD, hypnosis, and electroshock. Right, so obviously that is okay. like... That's just yeah, straight up awesome. um, MK Ultra types of recipes. I mean, we yep. know for sure. I mean, like Owen Cameron's sleep psychic driving, room, psychic driving studies at um, the Montreal Neurological Institute, which will come up later in this podcast. They're doing exactly that, and I'm not. I'm forgetting exactly the years that the, these Cameron experiments were happening. That this was in was, the fifties. And that was in, that's what I thought, right? Yeah. This is 1958 that he wrote this in his journal. Oh, and that's, right, I think so exactly the time he was doing it. Yeah. The time that's right. So, so this is now, I think the first Macy's conference was 1950 or 1951 and Ashby was going to those. Right. And so, so Ashby had been, I think Donald Hebb also was going to the Macy's conference, who was the director of the Montreal neurologic Institute and again, one of the most famous neuroscientists uh, uh, ever. And you can see where all of these sort of lines are coming together at once, right? And like Ashby is talking about this in the context of treatment, although it certainly doesn't sound like a treatment I would want to be like a part of. I mean, it sounds like, the most, like, like yeah. the, mo the most horrific kind of like old school psychiatric kind of uh, uh, asylum treatment, mm -hmm. you know, but these are these exact same things are being used as part of this MKUltra project that are explicitly trying to investigate how can we reprogram, uh, mm -hmm. cause amnesia, cause dis dissociation within Psychosis. individuals in yeah. ways that are going to be controllable and lead towards various um, security goals that we have. Yeah. Right. What's interesting is like, especially like hypnosis, like we know, right, that hypnosis started being used in this context 
way earlier than this. Like it as early as the II. 30s and the 40s yeah. during World War II, you had like Estabrooks at least like trying to get anybody in the Department of Defense or the FBI to listen to him. <laughs> Writing like, Jagger Hoover can, like every can, week. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and and fucking yeah. William Donovan and stuff and, and yeah. being like, I can make, you know, these uh, <laughs> uh, perfectly amnesia uh, spies for you who will do everything you want. And I'm right. in general pretty skeptical that that any of that worked. Certainly, I think S. Seems Brooks like was that really was just the trying impression. to get that a lot of people had about him about that, Estabrooks, yeah, right right yeah I, um, I have that view too but we know right as early as like the 40s that in uh operation artichoke and bluebird mm-hmm. that the goals of these quote-unquote mind control research right and bluebird and artichoke were really about enhanced interrogation and, and torture yeah. right but interrogation it, itself is a situation not unlike what ashby describes here of you know, treating a patient, the imposition of the therapist's will on the patient, yeah. right? If you were just read that whole section over again and, and think prisoner and interrogator, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, it, it follows totally onto that. Give them right? LSD, and, hypnotize them, sodium pentothal. Yeah, like, yeah basically. Right. It, it also reminds me of break, Henry Murray's treatment of Ted Kaczynski at tr- Harvard. Tr- right. Yeah. Going right, in right. there and just like kind of this attack therapy kind of thing, like break them yeah. down, like break yeah. things first. And then you can, I mean, honestly, it's like trauma-based mind control is not, like yes. a, a super inappropriate way well, of terming well, it. Break things it first really is, is also yeah. is also that is like core to Ashby's whole cybernetics too. So there, there's all this section in the the chapter on Ashby where they talk about this 1945 paper he had where he like proposes like a a, a machine built out of beads and elastic. I don't know if you guys yeah, read I, any I read of that. that. I mean, it, it and basically, I mean, it's just like a, a lattice of beads which are each connected to each other by elastic bands such that right if you if you pull one of the beads and release it it'll oscillate and vibrate back and forth and that energy will dissipate throughout the system and the other beads will vibrate a little bit before eventually it'll return to equilibrium and, and not have anything right but ashby talks about how well actually if you take one of the beads and pull too hard so that one of the elastics breaks and then release the breed like what will happen will basically be the exact same thing that the bead will move around and eventually the whole system will come to a new type of equilibrium but this will be a different equilibrium where one of the elastics is broken and that one particular bead is like hanging loose right and it's now a different equilibrium and and he describes this system as being meta stable because like not only can it withstand a perturbation that i put into it and the elastic vibrates and eventually it, it, it dampens the oscillation but even if I put a perturbation that should break it, what happens is it just turns into a new type of stability. Mm-hmm. And so this, that kind of idea was like core to Ashby's entire way of thinking about the world and machines and human beings is that what is happening inside these systems is that like breaks are happening and then they find a new type of equilibrium. Yeah. And so I think that that you're right in terms of that 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 sense that kind of thinking about things really permeated a lot of the early MK Ultra mind control research. And I think what what the other thing that's interesting here is that you can see through cybernetics the parallels. Some some people on Twitter have kind of talked about this, uh, and I know you know some people within the the sort of SJ listenership will probably be familiar with the the parallels between like MK Ultra research and the internet right yeah, and the mm-hmm. idea that totally. the internet 
is a way to apply, you know, MK Ultra kind of mind control to everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and you can see from this early cybernetics and, and the early Macy's conferences, right? Because also like JCR uh, Lidlicker, is that I say that right? Um, was also invited to the Macy's conferences. You know, like a lot of the early internet pioneers were there too. Yeah, And you can see this parallel where we want to both, like if I understand both myself as an individual human being or individual human beings as systems, as complex, dynamical, right? Exceedingly complex, dynamical systems, Mm -hmm. which uh, exist in some type of of non-equilibrium steady state, right? And I want to drive their behavior. And then I also view society as a system Mm -hmm. itself, which is composed of systems, those being individuals, right? It's like, how do I drive the dynamics of society if that's the thing that I want to shape without knowing how to drive the dynamics of the individuals that compose it? Mm-hmm. And this uh, this concept is basically called second order cybernetics, right? Where you apply yeah. cybernetics to the individual agents within the systems themselves, and that was the, the, the real pioneer of uh, second order cybernetics was Heinz von Forrester, who we, we mentioned briefly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.